with me to John chapter 5. Happy Father's Day, men and men of God, men and mighty warriors. Can I get a woo-woo? Come on, mighty warriors. Amen. I pray that uh, if you have special people in your life, your children, if they're with you, your wives, your loved ones, they will give you foot rubs, back rubs. They will uh, cook for you. They will take care of you. How many men want some loving today? Amen. Some men, you just want to get out and do some yard work. That's up to you. But I pray that all the fathers, you're blessed today. You know I'm a blessed father. I like things simple, so just keep it simple. Let me hang around my kids today, be in the backyard, let my wife cook like she always does, amen. My wife does uh, better grilling than I do, so if you ever come to my house, my wife is on the grill. So just, honey, cook up something today on the grill. Open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. The word of the Lord today is that Jesus is the bread of life. How many believe Jesus is the bread of life? You've already read what I'm about ready to read. You know that Jesus supplies all of our spiritual needs. He is the substance of what satisfies our soul. As the old psalmist said in Psalm 23, I shall not want. How many here today have a shall not want relationship with God? That you shall not want. That everything you need is with Jesus. Everything I need is in Jesus. Can you say that out today? Everything I need is in Jesus. Woo! Come on, somebody. Believe it. Everything. I can only imagine what David was going through when he wrote that. But he knew to speak it by faith. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't want for any good things. Every good thing is found in my God. Everything that I need is found in Jesus today. So there is hope beyond the scope of what's going on today with recessions. There is hope beyond the scope of what's going on in politics. And that hope is in Jesus. Amen. Now go with me to John chapter 6 verse 25. And if you got a Bible that you can scroll or flip the pages, go all the way to verse 71 and kind of run your eyes through this passage. This is what we need to cover today. Maybe give them a little scroll there on the screen, please. So like always, when I have a great big passage like this, I come ready to cover the whole thing. I'm ready. I'm ready to go from 25 all the way to 71. Now, last time we tried a passage, you shaking your head? Yeah. Because last time we tried a passage like this, I think we went to five, six parts, okay? But I'm going to be watching you today. I'm going to be listening to the amens. I'm going to see if we can do it. Now, if we can't, that is not a bad thing. We just take our time. And I especially want you to feel comfortable to learn in this church and never fake it. That's why a lot of times I'll ask questions. And sometimes you'll hear somebody give the wrong answer. That's okay, class. How many are okay with that? Don't feel embarrassed for them, and don't you feel embarrassed, because I'm asking rhetorical questions. I want to hear back from the audience. I oftentimes feel preachers get too used to being behind a pulpit, and they feel like they're making a presentation instead of doing communication. This is not just presentation. This is communication. And if you look at my master, if you look at my Jesus, he was cool with questions and things like that. Now, if you just want to know my, my swag or my style behind the pulpit, if you start cracking jokes and you try to be funny and you're always saying something like that, that gets annoying to me. That's bothersome. I'm going to ignore you, okay? Or if a child bursts out and says something funny, I'm going to ignore the child. Sometimes the parents will all laugh because the child said something. I just ignore that. So I'm not into the entertainment of the moment. I'm into what you are experiencing as a listener, as a receiver, as I'm up here by God's grace as a broadcaster. Now, I say all of that because these are a lot of verses. And these verses, sadly, have been misunderstood by two major components of Christianity. I'm talking major components of Christianity. To the point, if I can be honest with you, I have in the natural, in the flesh, been, been, been weary of coming to this passage. Like, in one sense, the word of God had, had become, as a temptation, I'm not saying I let the devil do it, but a burden... Because I know what I've got to face here. I know what I've got to do with, deal with in this passage. Now, 
If the Lord told me just to overlook it and preach he's the bread of life as if these heirs in the body of Christ did not exist, I would do it. But the calling that the Lord has on me, I cannot go through this and have you hear one side of the message, which would be the right one, which would be our message today. How many know we write in Jesus' name? You're at the right one. And now everybody says that, but I'm just going to let you know, you're really at the right one. You got the right, right one, baby. This one right here, okay? This is the right one. This is the right interpretation. I'm telling you it's the right one, okay? Uh, now, I could do it, and I could... By God's grace, do it well. But then some of your friends who fall into these two major errors might bring you here and you might get a spiritual whooping because you're not ready for what they're going to bring out of this passage. So this is where now I've got to take my time to do three things, basically. Preach what it actually says, the bread of life. That, like, that's what I want to do. That's the point. That's what I want to be on today, the bread of life. But then i got to also correct those two errors. So that's three things we got to do. And so I've got to see you participating as a Bible class to see how you're getting this. Can I hear an amen? amen? And so my gift to the fathers today, besides the mugs, everybody got their mugs, fathers? You got them on your way in or we give them on the way out? The way in. So they got them. All right. So along with that, I'm going to put some steak right now on the plate and serve up the word of God. Medium rare. How many are down with the medium rare? Okay. This is how we're going to do it. Now, the two major errors that I have got to deal with, and maybe let me just say this emotionally. Can I just bear my heart to you? Because I know you're blessed. Come on. I got fire and glory, and you're blessed, man of God. Come on. That's what his shirt says. Um, if I could just share my heart, if anybody has ever seen Fourth of July with Will Smith or Independence Day, I think is the name of the movie. Anybody ever seen that? This is how I feel right now. If you just want to know how I feel, if the pastor can have a moment, a little podcast moment here. This is how I feel. I feel like Will Smith, after he blew up the alien ship, but now his, his plane is crashed. And he, he had to drag this alien out of this own ship because he's got to bring it to his people to show them the alien because they're not going to believe him. And he's dragging this alien through the desert going, man, this is 4th of July. I shouldn't be here right now. But because of your sorry alien behind, I've got to be out here. That's how I feel, honestly. It's like because of these two heirs, I now have to make this a complicated and what will be confusing because both of these heirs, I know you want to hear them, but just be patient. I'm going to get you to them in just a moment. Both of these heirs, for me to explain to you how they even got to where they're at, you're going to have to turn off your thinker. You're going to have to turn off logic. You're going to have to turn off the, the normal reading of the context. So in one sense, I've got to confuse you to unconfuse you or to straighten you out. Did, did that make sense? So, so to teach you their error that they're going to try to put on you from this passage, I'm going to have to make it confusing. It, it's going to be confusing to you. It, it won't connect dots for you. Now, if you don't take your time in the Word of God and you don't do as we do by God's grace, verse by verse, you could see how these heirs could be you know, accepted, how they would be you know, believed by people. And, and, and I don't even want to say that the people who believe these are necessarily heretics on their way to hell. As I get ready to describe what I have to clear up here, they, there could be Christians who believe this, and, and, and they may be good people, and they may be even smarter than me, and they may know more about the Bible than me in other areas. But the problem is here is that they are wrong. And they made something out of this passage that was never supposed to be in the passage. Are you ready for the two errors? Can I hear somebody say, I'm ready? Roman Catholicism and Calvinism park their two main, uh, their beliefs, these two false beliefs, they park here in this passage. This is their main passage for what they believe that, that sets them apart for who they are. Roman Catholics believe that communion is the literal body and blood of Jesus. They will take you to this passage and say, this passage is what teaches us that. Calvinism teaches that God looks and 
predestined into the future those who will be saved, and he overlooks those who will be damned, and those who will be saved will be drawn in irresistibly. In other words, they won't be able to ever turn away. They'll be drawn in, and those that God overlooks will be damned no matter what they do. This is God's decision. And even one of their founders, which is named after Calvin, John Calvin, said that the sinner who dies in their sin is doomed from the womb. So they were never loved. They were never given grace. They were simply made as an object of destruction. Now, you know Roman Catholicism and how big that is. But if you want to know the reach of Calvinism, you have just, just look around. Most of the professors at Moody Bible Institute are Calvinists. Uh, one of the largest churches in our city or in our area, Harvest, with James McDonald was Calvinist. Uh, you, a lot of your study Bibles, a lot of your commentators are Calvinists. And so they point this out. But it's confusing to the context. And so is Roman Catholicism's understanding. When you read this, I just want you to see what Jesus is talking about. What you won't see is what they're talking about. Jesus is not talking about communion here. There is nothing about communion in this passage. As a matter of fact, John, the Gospel of John, doesn't even mention the Lord's Supper it's not in his view when he's writing this. That is not what he is on. And then predestination, and, and we all believe as Christians that God is going to work this out and he knows who will be saved, but the idea that God is choosing who is saved and then choosing who is damned, like you may choose your favorite characters, you know, in a video game or when you would play with figurines, you choose your favorite ones and make the bad ones over here. Like God is doing it. You won't see any of that being discussed here. What you're going to see, and I don't even want to give you too much of it because I just want to read it and let you see it for yourself, is that Jesus is specifically talking to Jewish people who are rejecting him. Up until the point of this story, it is be becoming a hostile. This is where the hostility begins to bubble over. This is where it starts to get intense. This is where now the Jewish people understand clearly who Jesus believes he is, and now they are on the outside of that. And they're going to start arguing like blatantly with Jesus, and Jesus is going to tell them who he is and who they are. Can I hear an amen? And he's the bread of life. If I could just skip to the end of the story, if I could just be where I want right now, he's the bread of life. He is the one that satisfies our soul. That doesn't mean you're going to eat Jesus today, though. Does everybody get that? He can be our shepherd and you can be his sheep, but that doesn't mean you're buying and that you have wool. We can use these words in a sense that they have a real meaning to them, but they are not literal in the thing that it's describing. You're a sheep, but you're not a literal sheep. But you are a real sheep of God. You are a follower of God. How many get that? And so sometimes people use the word metaphorical, figurative, allegorical, and all of those things. And we don't have to get into that. But we know what people mean by that. We know what people mean when they say these things. When Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and that you are his sheep, you do not automatically think to yourself, you have turned into a four-legged creature. Can I hear an amen? So I don't know why when they hear this that they jump to that other than just an error, just confused. There's no reason to think we're eating Jesus. And then when we read in the passage, that only those the Father draws can come to Jesus, there's no reason to read in that passage that the Father isn't drawing all of them through the gospel, that he's just hand-selecting. And there's no reason to read into that passage that you can't resist the Father's drawing, as you can see in other passages. How many are ready for the passage now? Okay. Like I said, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those 
false doctrines. I would just be skipping right through this passage, and maybe God will let me do it after I correct the errors. Maybe I'll just come back and preach a wonderful message on Jesus being the bread of life. But right now, I want to address this, and I want you to be prepared for that which is before you. Let's start in chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? If you know previous before this, Jesus had walked on water. He had fed the multitudes, and those multitudes are now looking for him. But what you're going to see in the middle of these multitudes are the Jewish leaders and the people that are starting to have problems with Jesus. So they're there mixed in. Jesus answered them, very truly, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Amen? How many believe the Son of God has the seal of approval? Jesus is the real deal because he's got the seal. Amen? Come on. So I'm going to kind of take my time here, and if I have to rewind some spots, I will, but I think this will be helpful to take it one piece at a time, and we'll see how far we get. Jesus now rebukes them. He's rebuking the crowd, and we know later on in John chapter 8 that it's being specifically towards these leaders that are among this crowd. So the leaders are hiding in the crowd, and they're the Jewish leaders, and they're using the crowd kind of as a political weapon, as a peer pressure against Jesus. We're going to learn that uh, further on in the story. But they're basically trying to get Jesus to explain, like, how did he get to the other side? Well, we know that he walked on water. But Jesus jumps right to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is the, is, the matter that, is that the matter that matters most. The heart of the matter is the matter that matters most. We got to get to the nitty-gritty. And what matters most about this is their heart is wrong. They don't even want the miracles. There's going to be a time where, where they're going to kind of talk about miracles even here, and they're going to talk about them a little bit later. But notice right here that Jesus sees through this and says, it's not really the miracles that you actually want. It's you want stuff that feeds your flesh. Notice it. You're not just coming because of the signs that I perform. You're coming because you got to go to the all-you-could-eat fish buffet. You got to go to the fish fry. That's why you're here. So he even sees through this idea, as we'll hear later on, that people are looking for signs. And you'll even hear this in our generation. Well, I just want to see a sign. I want to see a miracle. Then I would believe. And Jesus sees right through that and says, no, no, no. That's not really what you want. You just want to feed your flesh. You just want the appetites of your carnal nature. That's really what you're after because I could heal, like Jesus is saying, I could heal people all day long, but that wouldn't even be that good for you because what does that do for you? Because you're not the one always sick. Because after I healed you, you're not sick anymore. But if I kept feeding you and feeding you and feeding you, now you don't got to go to work anymore. Now you don't have to, you know, put up with your boss. You don't have to do this. You can now just be as fat as you want and call it spirituality. You see, they literally were looking at Jesus for a handout. And Jesus sees right through it. Now highlight verse 27 because this is everything. You're going to see it so clear. This does not change in the context. It doesn't change from this to communion halfway through. Communion will be something different. Baptism is something different. Religious ceremonies will be something different. But what is his point right here? Do the work of God. Don't work for food that spoils, but work for that food that brings you eternal life. Does everybody see that? That's where it's all going to go down. That, that, that's the whole point. There is no switching. There is no changing of what he is focused on. He is telling them, you are hungry in your flesh, but you need to get hungry in your spirit. You are hungry in your flesh, and you want me to give you temporary things, but you need to get hungry in your spirit, and I'll give you eternal things. That's where Jesus is, amen? Jesus is not where the Roman Catholic is, and he's not where the Calvinist is. He's not in either one of those camps. He's right where he wants to be. That's where he's going to teach them. Now let's go to verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do 
to do the work God requires. Because he said, don't work for the food that spoils. Because they want to get the handout so they don't have to work anymore. He sees right to their heart, their laziness, and they want to call that spirituality. And, and Jesus says, no, you, you still need to work, but you don't work for this kind of food. You work for the real food. And now they're, they're clued in. They're checked in. They're like, okay, so I got to do some work. And they're, and they're asking, okay, what does God require? What kind of work does God want me to do? Now, notice what Jesus says in John Chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Please highlight it and we'll say it together. To believe. Let's highlight to believe and onward. And then we're going to say it on the count of three, okay? The work of God is this. One, two, three. To believe in the one he has sent. One more time. To believe in the one he has sent. Now let me just pause here for a moment because sometimes people talk about the rich man coming to Jesus and him asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commands. There are a group of people that now teach we have to keep the Jewish law and they point to that saying Jesus was about the law and that's an evidence of it. Notice when it's broke down as plain as it can be, Jesus Jesus puts faith above works. We're saved by faith and not by works. Why did he talk to the rich man about works? Because Jesus understood that the man, he thought, that man thought that he had worked enough to earn heaven. So Jesus wanted to blow him up on his own system. You think you're going to get to heaven by works. Well, keep all the commands and you'll get to heaven. In other words, be perfect. And then the man says, well, I've been doing that, so I guess I'm good. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus exposes his heart and says, well, then sell everything. Because the first commandment is put God first and have no other gods before him. And what did Jesus say was the number one competitor against him and, you know, God and uh, him and God or him. Uh, what did Jesus say that was the biggest competitor, competitor between God and our sinful nature? He said it was money. He said, if you want to serve me, you can't serve money because God and money are two different masters. So he was saying to this man, you really don't have God as your master. You have money as your master. Amen. So that's why he talked to him about works because the man was in a works-based religion and Jesus wanted to expose him. Even all your working is not good enough because you're still serving the wrong God. You're serving money. So when Jesus is breaking it down, what does he say? This is the work of God. This is it, plain and simple, to believe in the one whom the Father or God has sent. And that's Jesus. Now, doesn't that correspond to John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever, what, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So that's, that's right in line with the message. So they're asking the right question. They're, they're not really too sassy right now. They're trying to understand where Jesus is coming from, but it's going to blow up here in just a moment. Watch, verse 30 now. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, notice Jesus had already exposed their heart and said, you really don't want signs. You want to get fat. You want your flesh to be fed. You want to be carnal. But now they ignore Jesus' rebuke and go back to this pretend facade spirituality and now call for a sign. He's going to correct that desire for that in just a moment and show them what the real sign is. But notice he had already told them from what heart that was coming from. Their heart to want to see a sign wasn't out of true biblical concern that they might have evidence to follow the Messiah. It wasn't out of that. It was because they were getting called out because they wanted their flesh. Jesus knew that they weren't really looking at the signs because hadn't he already did a sign for them? When they got fed, they, they already saw a sign. They saw the miracles. They already saw a sign. Those are the signs of the Old Testament. They knew that those things had been done. That's why they're following him. So now asking for another sign after Jesus had already told them, you don't really need signs, you need to check your heart, is showing that they're missing the point. And now they're putting Jesus on the spotlight like as if he's a magician. And they're like, perform for me, Jesus. Like, what have you done for me? Do this for me, Jesus, and I'll believe, you know. In other words, like they're the God now, and Jesus is that tap dancer on the side of the street, and they're going to put some money in that bucket and say, keep tap dancing, Jesus. Since they have not received the rebuke, Jesus is now going to correct even this understanding and show them what a sign really is. So what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? 
What will you do? Verse 31. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. And here it is from Exodus 16.4. So they're quoting scripture now. They say, hey, this is what happened in the wilderness. He, talking about God, gave them bread from heaven to eat. And how many say amen to that? How many believe of God miraculously feeding the Israelites six days a week with manna in the Bible? Like, I believe that. Let's keep going. Now, verse 32. Now, how does Jesus respond to them? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Highlight true bread, please. Now, right here, is this true bread going to have anything to do with communion thus far? Like, let's just say what you read thus far. Does it have anything to do with communion? No, and I'm not tricking you, and he won't change it in a moment either. What is he talking about? He's talking about himself. Didn't he just say that the true work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent? Because it started off with them coming because they got their bellies filled, right? Like Jesus saw through their spirituality and got right to where they're at in their flesh and called them out. And then he told them, don't work for food that spoils, work for the food that goes for eternal life. Then they asked, well, how do we do the works of God? And then he told them, believe in the one whom God has sent. That's himself. Now he's telling them who he is, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who is the bread from heaven? Who is the true bread? Come on, somebody. That's where we're at right now, okay? Now, that should be the end of the matter. We should not have to do with Roman Catholicism anymore, but you'll see where they get confused in just a little bit. We haven't got to Calvinism yet, but I hope that you see the great promise here. Now, I'm tempted to go back and preach it right now because this is amazing. Okay, right here, this is amazing. Just like I started off in Psalm 23, God satisfies our soul. And the Bible is saying that Jesus is now that satisfaction. And we don't have to wonder what God has done for us. We can know God has given us everything that we need in Jesus. And we don't have to look at Jesus as some faraway God. We can see Jesus as the one that was sent to us. That God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so all of us today can take comfort and encouragement into knowing that we have provision for our soul every day of our life that we can feed on Jesus. And as, is, as the Israelites trusted God for the manna six days a week, we can trust the Father to give us Jesus seven days a week. Amen? That's where I want to be. Maybe I'll go back there, but what am I doing right now? I'm dragging that alien through the desert on the 4th of July. Why am I here right now? Because I got to explain this to you because you're going to see how they get confused in just a little bit here. Now look at verse 34. They're doing pretty good, but it's going to get intense. Keep following it. They go, sir, then always give us this bread. Very similar to the woman at the well. Well, then give me that drink if I'm never going to thirst again. So it goes right over their head. And, and here you, you may feel a little bit of compassion, like, okay, it might be hard for them. If I put myself in their shoes, maybe I wouldn't have gotten it either. But here, here's the problem, is that it's coming out of their rebellion. And I, and I know this because I, re I read ahead. And, and they're not wanting to get it. Even though they're asking questions, they're not wanting to learn. Have you ever been around somebody that asked you questions but really didn't want the answers? Have you ever been around somebody that, that they say they don't understand, but you know that they understand? It's just you don't agree. That's why sometimes I got to say to people in, in conversations, do you understand? And then they go, well, I don't agree. I didn't ask you if you agree. I got to repeat myself. Listen, I asked you to just, do you understand? Do you, do you comprehend the words that I have communicated to you? I'm not asking if you agree. I'm just asking right now, do you understand? Tap somebody and just ask them, do you understand? That, I mean, if, if you don't have wisdom and understanding, we can't go to whether you agree or not. At first, we have to go to, do you understand? Did you, did you just get what I'm trying to say? And so what Jesus is teaching them is that he is the bread of life. Like, that's it. That's, that's the whole point of what he's saying. Now, if you say, Joe, show me that in black and white. I'll show it to you right now. You ready in verse 35? Highlight it, please. Jesus then declared, I am the what? The bread of life. 
There it is. Okay, so no more speaking in, in, in terms that they can't understand, allegorical. He speaks clearly to them, I am the bread of life. Now, just highlight, I am the bread of life, please. Just highlight that, please. Now, we have a couple different ways to take this. We could, we could say all of these terms, you know, allegory, metaf um, metaphorical, you know, these kinds of things. And, and we, 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 we know what, what that would be. We would just say all of those kind of ways of describing something, allegor, allegory, metaphor, these kinds of things, we would just say symbolic. We would say that there's something symbolically being said. Now, there's another way that we would understand something like real. Like it's not symbolic, it's real. Now, if we look at this and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Let's just, everybody look up at me, please. Do you believe that Jesus then turned into a loaf of wonder bread <laughs> right in front of them with slices? He's tied up in that little plastic bag. He's got the little thing on there, the little tie on there. Like, is that literally what just happened? No, so we know, we know like right at this moment, Whatever you want to call it, this is not to be taken in the literal sense of what we would really think bread was. We all know that. How many know that? Like, we, we just, we all know that. And what's going to get confusing to people later on is they're going to think you're eating Jesus. Because he called himself the bread of life. And he says, this is my flesh and this is my blood. And they're going to think you're eating Jesus. But right there where he introduces this concept of the bread of life, do we really think he became bread? Do we really think later on in the day, Peter takes some butter, puts it on Jesus' arms, puts a little bit like, I like to put Tony's on my bread, you know, put a little bit down and then starts eating Jesus. Like we know whatever you want to call this as a literary device, we know that it's not literal. We know that there's something symbolic being said here. We know that Jesus talks like this, I am the door. And we don't all of a sudden see Jesus turn into a wooden door with a handle on it, you know, open and closed with hinges, right? Like we, 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 we all know this. Like no one, no one has a problem with this until they try to pr prove their false doctrine. Like, we all know this. So why does it get complicated for them? Because I believe people want to make stuff out of the Bible more superstitious to help them in their doubt and unbelief. If I could just skip ahead. As I've studied, and there's a book out there by God's grace. If it would be helpful, I'll give it to you as a gift today, especially to our fathers. You can pass it along to those who may need it. And the book's title is Real Saints Don't Pray to Saints or Angels. And as I read about how people develop the belief system to pray to saints and angels where you never see it in the Bible, it's really out of their doubt and unbelief. You know, they pray and they don't get an answer from God and they're like, oh, maybe God didn't hear me, but his mother might, so I'm going to start praying to Mary. That, that's what they think because out of their unbelief and, and the superstition, they develop this, this false belief to kind of cover over what's really the issue of their heart. And it's the same thing right here. Some people don't feel close to Jesus, so they want to eat Jesus and have Jesus in their belly. And then they're going to feel really close to Jesus. I eat my God. I eat Jesus. And some of you all think I'm playing. I have the links here to the Roman Catholic site that says you eat Jesus. They literally say as a comparison, cannibals, they only eat part of the person. You get to eat all of Jesus. That makes this better. That's how they talk. In their mind, they think it's better. And the reason why it's not cannibalism like what the Bible forbids is because it's God's, uh, it's, it's Jesus' spiritual, resurrected body, which is going to cause a whole other contradiction. Jesus' resurrected body is not what died on the cross. Can I hear an amen? What died on the cross was not the resurrected body. But yet somehow you're supposed to partake in the sacrifice of Jesus by eating the resurrected body. It's confusing, isn't it? And yet people want us to believe it. And I just want to get back to the bread of life, sister. I just want to eat the bread of life. I just want the word of God every day. I want Jesus in my life. I am the bread of life. Now, once again, the water illustration with the woman at the well. And he's talking about that he's going to give her that water. But we know he is the source of that water. Do we think Jesus turned into a river right in front of her? You know, like how you see in those sci-fi shows, he turns into water, you know? This is obvious to us, but 
Even the smart can become foolish when they lose the grounding of the word of God. It's not that you and I are smarter than everybody that's ever believed these things. So let's not become prideful and think about how great we are because we figured it out and we're right and they're wrong. No, it's just when you leave the grounding of the word of God, and as it, the old timers used to say, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. If you don't have the word of God as your foundation, anything, any imagination, any false belief or teaching could become your belief or teaching. And so we have to be careful lest we be like them you know, be humble, be a student of the word of God. We don't know everything. We're always learning. But notice in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Okay, let's, let's get past everything I was saying before because y'all ain't getting it now. I'm just going to be very clear with you. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one you need, okay? Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He makes it clear. Verse 36, but as I told you, because Jesus is seeing through what's going on here. He can see the Jewish leaders manipulating the crowds. Like if you've seen the Jewish movies, uh, the Jesus movies, the Jewish leaders are always there in the crowd being sinister. The reason why they portray it that way is because you'll see in John chapter 8 that it's been their mess all along, and they've been using these people. But before we get there, we'll just hear his rebuke to this crowd. His crowd rebuke to them is, you know what? I have told you this. As I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. So he looks through their facade of wanting signs or needing more explanations. And he's like, man, I told you this. And you see me. You know I'm here. You've watched me lay hands on people in the name of Yahweh. You've seen me teach from the scrolls. You, you've seen me uh, you know, disappear and appear on another side of a lake, and there's no other uh, you know, uh, explanation except I walked on that water, okay? Come on, somebody. Like, you know this, but you're pretending you don't know this. You do know this. Now everybody say Calvinism. Got to take off the belt now for Calvinism. Here comes out the belt, okay? This is now where they enter into the picture. They, up into this point, they've been amening us the whole time. John MacArthur, they've been amening us. Rudy, uh, <laughs> Moody, Bible host, radio host, they've been amening me the whole time. You tell those Roman Catholics a thing or two, okay? But now here they come, and then now they want to point to you and say, all y'all people who believe in free will, that you had a choice, that you chose God, and that, uh, you know, that your, your neighbor is loved by God just as much as you're loved by God. All of you who think God loves the whole world, he doesn't really love everybody in the world. He just loves the people he's chosen in the world. That's how they interpret world, by the way. It's the one he's chosen. So anytime you see the world, it really just means to, to them chosen. God so loved the chosen that he gave his only begotten son, okay? That's how they see it. That's how they're going to interpret it, okay? So they're going to say, now listen up. What does it say right here? All y'all free will people that Jesus loves the whole world. What does it say? All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So if we now say back to them, well, the Father's will is for all to be saved, they say, well, then are all going to be saved? And we go, no, not everybody's going to be saved. And then they're going to say, now you're contradicting what, what Jesus said. Jesus said that it's his will that whoever looks at him is saved. And so in other words, whoever the Father is drawing is always drawn. Whoever the Father is willing to be saved is always saved. And yet you and I go to Timothy and, and to Peter and the scriptures say that we're to pray for all people because he doesn't want any to perish but all to come to everlasting life. And then just like they substituted the word elect in the word for world, they'll do that now for all. All just means elect again. He wishes that all the elect would be saved and that none of the elect would perish. It doesn't mean all. Like all does not mean all and world does not mean world. Are you confused yet? And by the way, Jesus is a loaf of bread. 
Welcome to the world of religion. Any wonder your friends and neighbors don't want to come to church today? So many are confused. Well, what is Jesus? Is he a loaf of bread? Or, or is he the divine dictator of heaven, define, you know, deciding on his own merit who comes to heaven and, and who goes to hell based on his own desire? So literally there's going to be people in hell forever simply because he just made them for that? He just created them, made them, and sent them to hell. That was the whole point. And he created and made others for heaven. And they think Romans 9 and other passages help them, but they're just as confused in those passages as in this passage, one at a time. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Now, looking at this, does anything here say that God only loves some people? Does anything in this passage talk about what happens when people come or hear about Jesus and don't believe? No. What this has simply said is that Jesus is teaching the people that the Father is involved in who comes to him. That's all that's being said here. We'll get into more of their favorite passages in just a little bit. But notice in verse 37, as I highlighted it there, all those the Father gives me. Does it say specifically that those ones that the Father gives are the ones that he forces to come or, in other words, chooses by rejecting others? No, you have to read all of that in there. What did we just simply hear? That the Father's giving people to the Son. Father gives people to the Son. Just read through it again. See if I played a trick on you. Look at it. For my Father's will is that everyone looks to the Son. Now, answering what they say. Well, does that mean everybody is saved? No. But does everybody look to Jesus? Does everybody look to Jesus? No. It's just, it's, 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 I don't know. See, here we go. Let's not go too fast. It's a simple question. So I, I don't know if you're confused or what's going on here. But just answer the simple question. Does everybody look to Jesus as their Lord and Savior? No. So for them to read into that, well, if it's the Father's will that everyone who looks to Jesus and believes is saved, then that means it has to be only the elect. No, it doesn't say that. It just simply says that whoever looks to Jesus will be saved. It doesn't say about the other person not looking, being left out of the party, in other words. It's simply saying that if you're coming to Jesus, you're coming to Jesus because the Father is involved. And as we have taught many times in this church, the Trinity are working in unity for the cause of salvation. The Father so loves, he sends the Son. The Son comes, does the work of redemption, and then the Father and Son together send the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit comes to, the, uh, comes to the people through the conviction of the Word of God is being preached. Can I hear an amen? And if people reject the Word of God, they reject the Word of God, they won't come to the Son, and they won't look on the Son, and they won't be saved. So the Father's will can still be intact for everyone to want to be saved. He can still want the world to be saved. He can still want none to perish. But here's what he will do. This is what he guarantees, is that anyone who looks to the Son will always be saved. And so do we believe in an elect people? Do we believe in a chosen people? A people that the Lord foreknew, predestined, that he had plans for us because we would choose him? Absolutely. Does God know his people? Can I hear an amen? If you believe that. But does that mean we were forced to come? No, nope, nothing in there. Does that mean we couldn't have, um, we could not have resisted? No. Does that mean that the others who don't come was not a part of his will to be saved? None of that is being said here, just like nothing to do with communion is being said here. So what did we learn here? We learned that the Father is giving to Jesus all those who believe in what the Father says. Who would be those people at this moment? The righteous Jews. Somebody say the righteous Jews. Who is the Father giving to Jesus in John 6 Literally, people like Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is a righteous Jew, and he sees the Messiah, and he starts to hang out with him like in John chapter 3. Who's doing that in Nicodemus' heart? The Father. Does everybody see that? The Father is making sure in Jesus' earthly ministry that a true Jew, one of the heart, one that truly loves God, doesn't miss the Messiah. 
Because sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, these poor Jewish leaders, man, they're just confused. Oh, Dios mío, they know not what they do. Why is Jesus so mad with them all the time? No, see, that's not really what's happening. Even though they don't know what they're doing, that's true. They made a choice to stop listening to the Father. And now because they have not listened to the Father, these wicked leaders are having the consequences of deception. Deception comes when those reject the truth. Can I hear an amen to that? I feel sorry for deceived people in Scientology too, but how many know they rejected Christianity? How many know all those people in Scientology, they know about Jesus, they know about the Bible, but they have rejected him. And therefore, they have opened themselves up to deception. Now they know not what they do, but they are still responsible for what they do because way back here on their spiritual journey, they didn't want to go to church anymore. They wanted to read L. Ron Hubbard after they saw that commercial at 1 a.m. with L. Ron Hubbard and Dianetics, if anybody remembers those, those commercials. See, they chose that over their Sunday school. And that's what Jesus is saying here. See, he's going to speak to them. Like I said, I did a lot of references. I could go to John 8. He's going to speak to them with a lot of heavy rebukes. And the whole, and some of it here in 6. And the whole idea is, y'all are not with my father. That's what he's going to keep telling them. You're children of the devil. You're not with my father. Because if you were with God, you would be with me now. You would understand what I've done. Your eyes would be open, just like you look through the scriptures, and people even knew as Jesus was a child. You know, Anna there at the temple prophesied over Jesus. You know, God the Father would make sure you got connected with the Messiah if you were a good Jew. These that are having all the troubles are the ones that have rejected the Father first before Jesus ever came on the scene and they were living in their own traditions and that's why they're in the mess that they're in. Can I hear an amen? amen? So what does this say to us? Just because I see time running short, about halfway through the passage, still more whoopings to give. We're not done yet in Jesus' name. Come back next week. Bring a Calvinist or a Catholic, Roman Catholic in Jesus' name because we love them all. What is this for us? Is that who chose who? What came first? Well, obviously from the scripture, God chose us first. God reached out to us first. God sent us his Holy Spirit first. But once again, in verse 40, that doesn't mean that all those the Father wills to come do come. It's just saying that it's his will that when they look to the Son, they're always saved. So no one can truly be following the God of the Bible and miss the Messiah. That's where we hear stories about our missionaries around the world, that before they heard about Jesus, before they heard about the Messiah, they have an understanding of who God is, like Romans chapter 1, from nature. And instead of worshiping nature, they worship the God they know is greater than the nature. So they're not making idols, or they're not worshiping their ancestors. We have seen in our missionaries uh, stories um, that when our missionaries come, they hear about dreams and visions from these special people that God preserved because they're their ancestors and their, their elders chose to worship the God of the Bible and what knowledge they knew instead of the idolatry or the, uh, the flesh and the things that the devil was lying to them with. And if you, um, if you want to read more about that, I can get you a book. Some of these uh, uh, cultures, from, whether it was from Asia or Latin America or in Europe, even had some of the same symbols of the Jewish people and, and some of the same worship practices of making sacrifice and atonement for sin, but they didn't have idols. And some of them even even had specific prophecies that people would come with a book to tell them about the God that they have been worshiping. And if you remember Paul's story, uh, well, the story that Paul uses when he's in Mars at Mars Hill about the unknown God, that is one of those stories among that people group, among the Europeans there. And so if you want to read more about that, you can get Eternity in Their Hearts. It's a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. So God's will is that all would be saved, None will be lost. God will make sure that even those who are reaching out with whatever knowledge they have, he will send missionaries to them or dreams or visions. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm not doing this rogue. I'm not on my own. I'm coming from the Father. Now, let's go to verse 41, please. Verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because. Okay, highlight that just right there. See, now we get the exposition here. 
Why, why isn't it just the people began to grumble? See, now it, it tells you the Jews. And specifically, we know it's the leaders. So as I was trying to build you up in the past, now you can see I wasn't making that up. These leaders were among these people, and they were asking these questions, causing this confusion, where I think the people just got it. They were like, okay, I get it. Like, that's what you're going to do for us. That's who you are. We get it. We're ready. Let's receive. I think a lot of them were ready, but the Jews are going to, the leaders are going to fight against this and cause confusion. Now, they began to grumble, and what, what were they grumbling about? That he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. See, at this point, they're not even grumbling. They're not upset. They're not confused about eating him. They're going to get confused about that in just a little bit. But right now, what they're confused about is that he said he came from heaven. Now, why are they confused about that? Look at verse 42. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? What are they missing here? Christmas, the virgin birth. What does the Bible say in the book of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does it say about John the Baptist? He's a messenger preparing the way of the Lord, Yahweh. They're missing this. In Isaiah 9, 6, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The child, the flesh of Jesus is born, but the Son of God is what? Given. They, they are missing this. Now, Jesus has already explained this to them in other passages, at least to some of their leaders. He has taught them this, like in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only what? Son, and they should know that language of son from Daniel chapter 7 and the book of Proverbs. So they should know that God has a what? God has a son. Go to the book of Proverbs. Let me just show it to you quickly. Proverbs chapter 30. In the midst of a rebuke, you know, speaking to people that think they know more than they really do, the author of Proverbs, like in uh, uh, Job's, like how God rebukes Job, asking him all of these rhetorical questions, the author of Proverbs uh, asks them all of these rhetorical questions, and he rebukes them, and he talks about the son. Let's see here. Is it, is it Proverbs? Yeah, Proverbs 30. Look at verse 4. Look at Proverbs uh, 30, verse 4. Who has gone up to heaven and come, come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his what? And what is the name of his what? His son, surely you know. See the rebuke to people who think they know everything? How come you don't know the name of his son? How come you don't know that God can do all of these things? You really don't know anything, in other words. Going back to the passage of John, these Jewish people were in expectation of a Messiah. But many of these leaders had disconnected their belief in the Messiah from the Son of God. They did not see them as the same person. And so Jesus is saying, you're missing this. I am the Messiah, therefore I'm the Son of God. In other words, the Son of God is the what? Messiah. Y'all tracking with me. Happy Father's Day. Y'all learning today? Having a good time? So they grumbled at this. Hey, don't we know this guy? We, we look at his body and we can see he's about 30 years old. You know, we've watched him grow up. We saw him as a young man. How can this be the one that came from heaven? Because in their mind, they're thinking of stories like angels coming from heaven. They're thinking about the visitations with God coming from heaven. And here they've seen this young man grow up, but they have missed the story of the virgin birth. Now look at verse 43. How does Jesus correct them? Jesus corrects them by rebuking their grumbling. Notice how he gets into their attitude. What does he say? Stop grumbling. See, they have an attitude. See, if you didn't catch it before, Jesus is right on that button. Jesus knows where they're at. Has anybody ever pushed your buttons before and got to where you were at? Pushed through your smoke screens, pushed through all of that and found your attitude? I'm right where you're at now. I'm pushing that button because I see you got an attitude. That's where Jesus is at. He's pushing their buttons. He knows what their problem is. Their number one problem is they don't want to believe. That's their number one problem. They don't want it. 
They, they want what they have. They would rather have their system and be under the oppression of the Romans than to have the Messiah be saved and see the kingdom of God come. In other words, they've got so used to living wrong, they would rather stay wrong than live right. Does anybody know a culture like that today? They would rather stay wrong than live right because now living right is going to cost them repentance and humility and a change of direction. But since they've been so used to going now in this direction, they just might as well keep going. That's what's happening here. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. Now, here's where the Calvinist goes. Everybody watch this. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. How many believe that? But the Calvinist now wants to put in there and says, only the ones the Father draws irresistibly come And the others are doomed on their way to hell. Is that what it says there? No, it simply says what we already affirmed before. Can you or I come to Jesus without the aid of the Father via the Spirit? That's all it's saying. That's all it's saying. And why is that important to these people? Because they think they're with the Father while they're rejecting Jesus. And Jesus is clearly telling them, if you were with the Father, you would be drawn to me. So since you're not being drawn to me, that's evidence you're not with the Father. Has nothing to do with a theological debate about whether or not lost people were truly loved by God and they went to hell because they were doomed from the womb. It has nothing to do with whether or not we can resist the drawing of the Father. These questions, these things that are being brought up into the context by the Calvinists are just as foreign to this teaching of Jesus as transubstantiation, the Roman Catholic belief of eating the body and blood of Jesus are to what he's talking about, the bread of life. It's not even in Jesus' purview. It's not what Jesus is even talking about. What Jesus is talking about, in other words, is why Nicodemus is cool and this one over here is not. He's explaining to them the difference. Nicodemus is getting drawn to me by the Father because he's been about what the Father's been about. Even though he looks just like you as a Jewish leader, he's not really of you. He's of the Father. You're, as he's going to say in John chapter 8 to these other ones, you're really of the devil. You're just as lost as the pagans are. In other words, you're just as much damnable as everybody else. You're not a true Jew. That's all he's explaining to them. He is not trying to describe to them the whole perspective of why people can be born and die and then go to hell. He's not trying to answer those questions. What he's answering to them is why they say they're Jews, but they're rejecting the Messiah, and they keep asking for more proof. More, If they had more proof, they would believe. And he's basically saying to them, I could give you all the proof in the whole world, and you still wouldn't believe because you're not down with my father. You rejected my father. You need to go back to what my father said. You're taking up your problem with me, but you need to go to the father and figure it out there first because all those who are down with the father are always down with me. That's what he's saying. Can I hear an amen? You went to the right church this morning. You got the right interpretation. Amen. Doesn't it feel good to be right? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Amen. Until the other one presents their case, and then we'll get the Calvinist up here debating. Some of you like, hmm, now I don't know, Pastor. That was quite convincing. Now, I believe if you listen to our debates with these friends, and I don't debate Christians on these topics. I might debate a Roman Catholic on this, but uh, I don't debate Calvinists anymore. I used to, but the Lord told me to stop debating Christians because my head was getting too just puffed up. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you get angry. And I just felt the Lord say, I need to save my passion for the lost. But Roman Catholics, I think many of them are lost, and po- possibly I would debate on uh, a communion. But you'll hear where I land on it in just a moment because uh, hopefully we can get to it. Um, here in these next few verses because I believe there's even room for their understanding but it just needs to be tweaked and not made so dogmatic. So he says to them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. So this gives us comfort that whoever uh, is drawn by the Father, you will always be saved. So when we talk about once saved, always saved being a false teaching, that doesn't mean you'll always be saved in the sense that you can't leave. It just means like 
you will always be saved when you desire to follow the Father. So in one sense, once saved, always saved is false. And in another sense, it's true. And the sense that it's false is like you can't change. Judas changed. How many know Judas changed? So then what they want to say, well, he was never saved. I mean, he did a whole lot of saved things then. He went out and did miracles. He was a part of the group. I mean, if he's not saved, how many all saved, you know? So, so the idea is you can turn from God, but if you are saved, here's a better way of looking at it, and you want to be saved, you'll always be saved. That's what this promise is saying. You'll, you'll never be cast out while you're crying out to God to be saved. He'll never cast you out. So anyone that ever doubts their salvation is in a, a place of unbelief towards God and his love for you. He loves you. He wants you to be saved. Now, if you're living in sin and you're being disobedient, the Bible talks about this kind of hypocritical Christian, a carnal Christian, and that is a dangerous place to be. And we've talked about that in other uh, lessons, that if you continue in that sin, that sin can harden your heart and bring you to a, dis a disruption and a disfellowship with, with God, you know, and you got to be careful. But for those of us here, who truly love Jesus and, and want to do what's right, the Father will never let you go. No one can take you out of his hands. Amen? Amen. I think I got to end it here. I think I got in here. Can we give it up for Jesus today? Amen? Amen. Amen. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? Let me summarize what we've learned because there's no way I can get into the other part. We're already headed for two. You knew it. Sister Lauren knew it. Oh, let me end with putting this together, because I think in each spot, there's a great spot to, uh, to get some, some practical application. What I want us to hear today, and I believe encouraged me, and I hope it encouraged you, is that Jesus is the bread of life sent to give us all that we need spiritually. And if you are here today, and you're not a Christian, but you sense God drawing you towards this message, that is because the Father wills you to be saved. And so be saved today. Don't resist the will of the Father. And that's clearly able to be done throughout the Bible. People can resist God. So God can have a will for all of us to be saved, and that's his desire. But then you can make a decision based on your will and desire to reject Jesus. So let your will and God's will come together. So if you have a, a temptation or any type of thing that takes you away from God, say something like this, not my will, not my temptation, not my wrong desires, but your will be done. Remember when Jesus said that? In the flesh, he knew that he could have quit and did something else, but he was there to be our Savior, to go to the cross. And so if Jesus can feel temptation to turn away from the Father, all of us could feel that temptation. I don't think Jesus was playing make-believe when he said, if there's another way, please let me do it. I don't think that's make-believe. I think he's really feeling what you and I feel at times when we're tempted. It's like, man, if I could, if I could get away with this, maybe I would do it. Or, you know, this looks, this, if there's a way out of this, I'll do it. And... And we understand that that's not God's best. And so if you then will say what Jesus will say, you know what? I see there's a way out. It may go easier for me. I may have more friends. I may have more popularity. But you know what? Not my will. Not my temptation. Not my, not my carnal desire. Not what my flesh wants. But God, what you want, God will save you. God will save you. He will come into your life and change you. And then what will you, what will you be able to do? Feed on Jesus every day. Feed on Jesus. Every day, let me get everyone's attention in closing, please. Every day, the Father is drawing you, if you're a Christian, to Jesus to receive everything you need. You wake up in the morning, you should be able to sense the Holy Spirit drawing you to prayer, to thank God for a night's rest, to thank Him for another morning, amen, to get up and rise and do the work that's ahead of you, for your family, fathers, to take care of your business that's in front of you. That's the Father drawing you. How many have sensed the Father drawing you before? And He's drawing you to Jesus. He's drawing you to Jesus. He's saying, put on some worship music. Worship Jesus. The Father loves it when we worship His Son. See, the Father has made it His desire to put His Son and His name above even His name. It's at the name of Jesus 
that every knee bows. If you want to come get prayer, you can even come now. But I want you to hear this for some of you because you get discouraged when you find your life is tough and hard. And you may feel like the Jews, why don't I feel God is close? It may be because you're the one that walked away. It may be because you're the one that changed. You see, God is not going to force you to come. That's why as much as I can see a little bit of Catholicism that we'll get into that, God's presence can be in our communion. And as much as I can see a, a, a little bit of Calvinism, that God is the one drawing and man, sometimes it feels irresistible. I mean, I can go there. But listen, where it's dangerous is where you think just taking communion and God doing something is where it's at because if you're not taking communion, then you're not close to God. And if you don't feel like praying, then God must not be drawing you. And that's why I talk to people all the time and they say, well, if God wants me, he's going to come get me. If God wants to save me, he's going to come save me. You ever met people like that? And they're thinking like, I got to wait on God to do more. No, no, God's already done what he's going to do. And so today, if you're not feeling him draw you, chances are you've turned your back on him. And he's not going to force you to come back. So Christians, when you feel that drawing of the Lord, keep coming to Jesus. Don't let your heart become hard. Don't take for granted those moments that you have in the car or at your job. And God says, give me five minutes. Don't take that for granted. Just want to say this quickly in closing. I'm always around Christians and I'm always in church. That's what I do. That's like my job, right? But I know when God is moving and he's drawing me to Jesus and I can be too busy, look at this, I can be too busy working for Jesus to spend time with Jesus. I was back there and I've already seen the, the, the video. I was back there watching the video and the Lord said, look at how the people cheer for the preaching of the gospel. The world mocks, but the world cheers. That's what heaven's gonna be like. We're going to cheer the preachers of the gospel. Come on. And man of God, you could probably ask the sister back there. Tears came down my knees and I almost stumbled. I had to grab a hold of the bookshelf and I just started weeping. But I could have missed it. Oh, leave me alone, Father. I'm too busy hanging out with Jesus in a religious way. Literally, that's what religion is like. And that's what the Jews were doing. Hey, Jesus, get out of our way. We're waiting for the Messiah. Seriously. Hey, Father, hold on. Don't bother me with that right now. I'm watching this. And the Father's like, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm drawing you to this. I'm drawing you to the Son, in other words. But we could be so religious, we miss them just like these, these, these folks did. So my prayer in closing for us as we get ready to dismiss is that whenever the Father draws you, you just say, yes, Father. I'll wake up in the morning and I'll pray. I'll read my Bible. I'll do family devotions. If you want me to leave in the middle of a movie, I'll leave in the middle of the movie. If you want me to go on a prayer walk, I'll start prayer walking. If you want me to call up my neighbor right now and we do a Bible study, I'm going to do a Bible study, Jesus. I'm not going to miss those drawings of the Spirit that the Father has. If you want to be drawn by the Father, can you stand up with me? Come on, somebody put your hands together and say, thank you, Jesus. Father, keep drawing us. Keep drawing us to the bread of life that satisfies our soul. As we get ready to dismiss second service, thank you for your patience. As we get ready to dismiss, if you need prayer, make sure you come on up. But no matter what this week, make time to be drawn to the Father. If you don't know Jesus yet, let the Father bring you to salvation. If you've been a backslider, come repent of your sins. Even if you're thinking about it, don't question it. The Father's drawing you.